Hi, thanks for joining us again. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, go with us on our journey through the book of Numbers. Today we're going to find ourselves in Numbers chapter 13, and I've entitled this Defeat from the Jaws of Victory. I know it's a little backwards from how the phrase usually goes, but I got that from a book that uh, was written by David Ragg. It's called Snatching Defeat from the Jaws of Victory, and it talks about the, the 20th century military blunders. And uh, it's a little controversial. Some people like it, some people don't. Some people think it's poorly written. But just an interesting concept of the failures when victory was right at their grasp and how they failed or blundered and it caused problems. It got me thinking, if there was a 19th century book about this, there would definitely be a chapter. It would not even be controversial. It would not even be wondered by anybody who understands Civil War history about George McClellan. George McClellan, the general of the U.S. Army, the Northern Army, would have been and had his own chapter in this. McClellan was constantly known for uh, having intelligence given to him about his army, his, about his enemy, and then overestimating troop sizes or acting slowly or not acting at all based on the intelligence. And it caused multiple battle losses or difficulties for the Union Army. In fact, uh, it's, one, of, one of my friends who I was talking to is really into Civil War, good, good history guy, said... If General Lee of the South had 30,000 troops, McClellan would think that he had 130,000. It's just he always overestimated his enemy's strength because he feared losing, because he had political aspirations down the road. He wanted to be president, he talks about in his writings. And so he was afraid to lose because of uh, the the other um, army. And so he was like, I'm not going to do this because I want to be president one day. And there are even instances, there's one instance where uh, McClellan, his, some of his scouts or uh, soldiers had found General Lee's battle plans. Some say wrapped around cigars, maybe, maybe not. But he has General Lee's battle plans bat- dealing with how to take over Maryland and push north. And McClellan is going to act on those, but he doesn't act wisely. He doesn't follow through. In fact, you end up at the Battle of Sharpsburg, or what we know as Antietam, and, and that battle ensues because of all of this. And McClellan wins the victory at, at Antietam. I mean, nobody really wins. There are, you know, 3,000 to 6,000 people who died and thousands, tens, 23,000 injured at that battle. It was, it was nobody really won. And yet Lee, Lee loses and he's marching back. And rather than break his spirits and rather than pursue, McClellan backs off and says, well, I drove Lee back to Virginia. This actually infuriated the president. The president actually relieved McClellan at this point of his, of his commission and said, you're no longer in charge of our troops because he was so frustrated and he did not want to do that. McClellan was consistently known for snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And as I was thinking about McClellan and the nation of Israel at this point in Numbers chapter 13, they're very similar. As we get into Numbers 13 and 14, Israel has victory at their doorstep. God is going to draw up the battle plans. They have the military. They have the numbers. They have the the God of the universe behind them. And yet we're going to see in Numbers 13 and 14 that they're going to snatch victory from the jaws, or defeat, excuse me, from the jaws of victory. They're going to fail at this. So let's look at, in Numbers 13, let's understand what is all happening here. We find ourselves in Numbers 13, where the nation of Israel is on the southern edge of the promised land. They're in a place called Kadesh Barnea. It's, it's down at the very, very south part of Israel. And as they're there, they're going to be poised to enter into the promised land. This is going to be a land that Moses later on says, that in Deuteronomy 6, he says, it's a place with good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. It's constantly, Moses highlights the goodness, the generosity, the graciousness of God and what God is going to do and provide for you. We're at this point where victory through God is imminent. They just need to continue to follow and God is going to blaze the path and it is going to happen and yet Israel is going to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So while they're here on the southern edge in Kadesh Barnea, God says, it says in chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord speaks to Moses and then he says, send thou men in the King James. Or literally, and some of the other versions have, send out for yourselves men to spy out the land. 
So they're going to, they're going to send out spies. But why does God need to send out spies? I mean, after all, isn't he really the all-seeing spy? Does he really need help with reconnaissance? I mean, God knows everything. God knows who's in the land. God knows what the land is like. So why did, why did God say, and why did the people, why, did, why does he send out spies? To help us understand that, let's get a little bit more of the context. Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you go back to, or forward actually, to Deuteronomy chapter 1, <clears throat> Moses, 40 years later, from Numbers 13, is going to be sitting, he's going to be reflecting, and he's going to be talking to the next generation of Israel going in to the promised land. As they're getting prepped to enter into the land, Moses is going to look and give his, his final, final messages. And while he's reflecting, he looks at Israel and says, let me, let me tell you about that time. Right before we went into the promised land. Notice in verse number 22. Verse number 22, the people are going to ask Moses to send spies into the land to do reconnaissance. They say, and you came, Moses said, and you came near unto me, every one of you, and said, we will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again by where we must go, up into the cities we shall come. So they look and they say, before we're going into the land, Moses, can, can we send in some spies to do some reconnaissance? And Moses seems pleased with the request. Verse 23, it says, and the, the saying pleased me well. So Moses wasn't upset by this request. We don't see a chastening by God of this request. But right in between chapter, or verse 23a, that first part where it says it pleased Moses, and then b, and I took 12 men of you, one of a tribe. Right in between we have Numbers 13, verse 2, where God says, send out a spies, send out one from each tribe. That is the commandment of the Lord. Verse 3 says, the commandment of the Lord is to, hey, one from each tribe, and go ahead and send them in. And then you have verse 23, where Moses is going to send out the spies here in Deuteronomy 1. So Moses is going to look and say, one of the reasons we're sending out the spies is because the people asked for it. They, they wanted that. And Moses isn't upset, and I think it highlights a little bit that God's promises don't eliminate the need for responsible action on our part. We still have to be wise. We still have to do our part. We still have to plan. We still have to be thinking and having vision long term. Yes, we know God is going to build the church, but we also have to be wise and be responsible too. So Moses, Moses allows for this, and God allows for it too, to send out these spies into the land. But it's interesting to note, and I believe it's, why does God do this? I think it has to do with the unbelieving or the wavering, the doubting heart of the Israelite. Matthew Henry said this, he said about this passage here, as if there were not, they were not sure their God is before them. What do they do? They send out spies. Is there any cause to distrust God? An unbelieving heart was at the bottom of this. The Jewish people are beginning to doubt. They're wavering. They have been all along. This has not been something new. And yet we're in a situation here where they're looking and saying, can we send in spies? Because we don't really know if God's really got our back, if God's going to go before us. And so they, they're battling with this doubt. And someone say, well, do they really know? Did they know what was, what was before them? Look in verse 20 and 21 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. What does it say? And I said unto you, you are come unto the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give, or is giving unto us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it. And the Lord God of thy fathers hath said unto thee, Fear not, neither be discouraged. So they understood God is giving them the land. He says, go, take the land. It's yours. Moses notes here that there's the potential of fear and discouragement because it is a big undertaking. There's unsettled um, things in their mind. Who, what are the people like? Where are we going? What's going to happen when we get in the land? And yet Moses says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged because God says not to be. So this is the context in which we come to Numbers 13. Moses gives us a little bit more in Deuteronomy chapter 1 to help us understand. So basically, when we go to Numbers 13, and we get to verse 2 where it says, go and send out for yourselves men to go spy out the land, we know that the Lord has already said, I'm going to give it to you. I'm giving this to you. Go take it. The Lord reminds them that they are not to be afraid, that they are not to be discouraged or disheartened, 
They are to stand strong in his promises. The people, though, respond, can we send these spies in? There's, there's some legitimacy, and yet there's some doubt and some waiver that's beginning to take place in their lives. It reminds me a lot of the gift of salvation. Where we look at God's gracious gift, he offers the forgiveness of our sins so freely because of the work of Christ on the cross. And though Christ shed, through his shed blood, I can experience that by faith through grace. And yet it is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, so that no one can boast. He offers us a gift of salvation, so we must take that gift. We must claim it. We must make it ours in order for it to be effective to us. Israel was on the, the precipice of the same thing. They were at the point where God is offering them a gift. They, through faith, must believe God and take the land. And yet we see and we know that they are going to waver in that. But Israel, I mean, when we think about it, they have this gift offered to them, but they act like many people. They want to know a little bit more before making a commitment. And we understand that from a human perspective. We do. Yes, they should have just followed God. That's the spirit. Just follow God. Don't ask questions. Just do it. But God doesn't seem to chasten them here. Let's remember that. We don't, see, we don't see God coming down and saying, because you asked for spies to go out into the land, I am going to chasten you. We don't have that. We, we have the human responsibility being demonstrated in this endeavor. What it reminds me of is, remember the, the uh, man in Mark chapter 9, who his son is dying, and he's like, Lord, I know with you it's possible. And he's like, God says, Christ says to him, if you believe, it's possible. And he's like, I, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Help my weak faith. And I think this is a crisis of faith right now for numbers of the Israelites. They're not going to deny that God exists. They're not going to deny that God is present with them. They see that all the time. And yet, their faith is going to waver. They're going to doubt. So God sends the spies in with the purpose of bolstering their faith, that they can go in and look at the goodness of the land, to look at the places they're going to be able to live and come back with the right, and perspe- right perspective and attitude. And we know that some of the spies do that. We know that most of them do not. So let's back up and let's continue to go through Numbers 13. We get to the point here where we're looking at Numbers 13 and the, the Israelites have to, to make the decision, are we going to believe God and move forward Or are we going to doubt God and just see what happens? Now, we face that on a continual basis in our lives, don't we? Do we believe what God says and move forward in our life, even when it seems difficult, even when it seems hard? Or do we begin to doubt God and say, I'll take my chances with my own own ways, my own schemes, my own plans? So as we come to Numbers 13, let's look at what happens here in in the passage. We know that God is going to send out the spies. And in verses 2 through 16, you have Moses laying out who these spies are going to be. And uh, we see that he's going to do that by the commandment of the Lord, verse number 3. And the Lord, he's going to send them from the wilderness of Paran. You're going to see the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of Zin, the Negev. You're going to hear those all terms. They're all different terms for that southern wilderness region in Israel, down where Kadesh Barnea is and, and lower. And we'll, we'll show that to you in a map here in just a second. But verses 4 through 15, it lists out the names. Nothing special about it, although there are a couple names you always want to remember. Verse number 6, from the tribe of Judah, you have Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Caleb is going to come back, and we know, we know Caleb is going to be a good guy down the road. The other one you want to take a note of, notice in verse number 8. Verse number 8, you have Oshea. Now you might say, who's O'Shea? I don't know who O'Shea is. Why is he important? He's the son of Nun. Okay, who is, who, is, who is that? Verse 16 helps you to understand that a little bit more. Because O'Shea, you know who he is. Most of you who are listening, you probably know who he is. His name is Joshua. So you have Joshua and Caleb. Verse 16, notice, notice the, the, what, it, what happens here. These are the names of the men which the Moses sent to spy out the land, verse 16. And Moses called Oshea, the son of Nun, Jehoshua, or Joshua. What does Jehoshua mean? Oshea means he saves, or he delivers. Joshua means Jehovah saves. 
Jehovah delivers. Whether this was Moses's when he changed Joshua's name, although he's called it in other places, either way, this is such a reminder to these 12 spies. Hey, Joshua. Hey, Jehovah saves. Come with me. Hey, people, this is Joshua. Jehovah saves. Jehovah delivers. They're going to go into a land wondering if Jehovah's going to do anything, if Jehovah's going to protect, if Jehovah's going to deliver them into this land. And Joshua, by Moses changing his name and talking to him, Moses declares, Moses says, hey, God has promised he is going to deliver. He is going to save us. And so that is what God does. We get to the point here at the end of these spies, there's not a lot in the names. But when you take verses 2 through 16, we know that by this point that God's promises have been declared. That you are giving, he is giving us the land and that he's going to save, he's going to deliver us. He's going to do that. These are the promises of God that the spies are to remember. They're to keep that in the forefront of their mind when they go into the land. So they, they get ready to go. Moses is going to lay out the strategy. So what's the strategy? Verses 17 through 20. We, we got to get a military reconnaissance. No, it's not a military reconnaissance in the sense of, okay, where do we attack? Which valley do we go into? We coming from the south or the north? Look at what Moses, Moses does here. He's not so much worried about the, the exact cities. Moses really doesn't know the land that well. In fact, he keeps his uh, generalizations, his locations very general. The, uh, you have, he talks about in verse 17, the southward area. He says, get, get up, by the, up this way southward and then go into the mountains. The word southward there is, is actually the word Negev. Negev is uh, the place down in the, down in the south there in the southern region. The Negev, you'll see it right down there. You also see what's there in that screen, Kadesh Barnea. Okay, so you have Kadesh Barnea and the Negev. And they're going to eventually make their way up. There's Beersheba. You're going to see Hebron. They're going to, we're going to talk about Hebron here in a second. And then they're going to make their way all the way up to this place called Beth Rehob or Rehob. It's also next to this place called Dan. So what is Moses doing? He's going to look and he's going to say in the, in the south word or in the Negev region. He's like, he's just saying, start in the south and make your way up to the hill country, which is up toward the, the northern part where the Jezreel Valley and some of the higher mountains and make your way that way. He doesn't focus on the, the exact locations. Look at what he says in verse 18 and 20. He says, I want you to go up into the land and I want you to see the land, what it is, what the people dwell therein, whether they be weak, strong, few or many, and what the land is. Uh, that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what the cities that they be in, how they dwell in, do they dwell in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, what's the quality of the land. So Moses, Moses just goes through and says, I just want you to tell us what it's like. I don't need a military strategy. I don't need to know how strong they are. I don't need to know, do they have chariots or horses or anything like that, because Moses isn't going to trust in that. Moses is going to trust in God. He says, what's the land like? Are the people weak? Are they strong? Are there lots of people living in the land? What's the quality of the land? And oh, hey, by the way, can you, uh, can you bring us some fruit? Uh, down at the, uh, verse 20. And be of good courage and bring us fruit of the land. Now the time was of the first grapes. So Moses says, hey, if you could bring us, bring us back some, some of the fruit of the land. That would be really great to enjoy. So they leave. They go on their scouting mission and it begins. And for the next 40 days, they're going to be scouting the entire land. And we talked about that they're, they're going to struggle to find out the exact path. And people, people try to figure that out. And there are really good scholars who've worked through it. And we have a good general idea of the path that they took. But they're basically going to scout, scout from the wilderness of Zin, which is down near the Negev. Uh, and they're going to go to Hamath all the way up in the north and to, to Rehob, uh, the, the scriptures talk about as well. Basically, they're going to go, and there's this phrase that you'll read in the Bible later on called from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the north. It's right up in that Baal, uh, Beth Rehob area. And you're going to have Beersheba all the way down in the, the southern region, down just a little bit below that bubble, down in, down in the southern region. So Moses highlights two parts of the scouting endeavor. He doesn't, he doesn't get into, they went to this place and saw this and went to this place, but he does highlight two. And they're, they're there for an important reason. The first one he, he highlights is Hebron. Notice in verse 22. And they ascended by the south and came to Hebron, where Ahim, Shishai, and Telmai, the children of Anak, were. 
Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And you look and go, okay, great. What did they see? They saw that there were the children of Anak there. Now, they don't say anything about that. At this point, we'll find out later who the children of Anak were and why that was important that they saw them there. He does highlight, and he says it in parentheses there, but this is the place that was built three years before Zoan in Egypt. In other words, this is that ancient city, the ancient city that's been around. It's an ancient city that's important to the Jews. He's looking and saying, yes, it's that Hebron. It's not a different Hebron. It's the one we're talking about, the one you know, the one you've heard about, children of Israel, since you've been a little child. It's an important place for us. It's a place of historical importance to Israel. We have those places in America. We could go to Plymouth Rock. You can go to Fort McHenry. You could go to Gettysburg Cemetery. You could go to Arlington. And all of those will stir up emotion in, of, of a purpose, of what, what has been done in America and what we fight for and what the freedoms we stand for. It also reminds us of the beginnings of America and our, histor- our historical nature and the, the backgrounds. And those places all remind us of our great nation. Hebron is one of those places for the Jews. Even, even now, even though they're not a nation, Hebron already had major historical significance and the Jews would have known this. Because they've talked about it. It's been in Genesis a number of times. Hebron, at Hebron is a place called the Cave of Machpelah. And in the Cave of Machpelah, you have Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah all buried there. This was their, this was their resting place. All of the patriarchs were there at Hebron. In this cave... In fact, to this day, now they have, they actually have a, it's called the, the Museum of the Patriarchs or the Cave of the Patriarchs. They actually have a museum there, a place that you can go tour the Cave of Machpelah because of its historical importance. But even back at the time of Moses, it had importance. This should have been to these spies as they go to Hebron, a stark reminder of the faithfulness of God. That our forefathers, our patriarchs, they're buried here. This is a great place. And why are they buried here? What is it about this land? Because this is the land that God has promised to them. God has promised us the land. God has promised them. Remember, he promised to Abraham a land, a seed, a blessing. He says, you're going to, you're going to be a great nation that that you look in the stars and you can't number. Think about this. They went to Egypt as 70 people. The spies are now spying the land because their camp is 2 million. They've, they're, they're experiencing the faithfulness of God. God told Abraham what he was going to do, and he's doing it. And we're part of it. And now we're going to get to go spy out the land because God has promised it, and God is faithful. And they have these, these theological filters that they should be remembering when they're going through the land, that God has promised, that God is faithful. Look at the next place they go to. They go to in the next verse. After Hebron, it says, they, verse 23, they came unto the brook of Eskel, and cut down from thence a branch of the cluster of grapes, and they bare it upon two, between two upon a staff, and they brought it to the pomegranates and figs also. I always wonder, like, how can you, how can you carry that many grapes, or how is it the two people? And then I started doing some research from grapes and grapevines in Israel. There are some massive clusters of grapes in this reason, and Eskel means cluster. That's what the Jews called it. So you have this, this, Part of their objective for Moses, hey, bring us back some fruit. They're going to do that. It's going to be carried between the, the staves. And at this point, think about this. this. This really challenged me to think about. What are the people back in the camp, the two million other people eating? Manna, right? Same thing they've been eating for the last year and a half, two years. They're eating manna. And I think it's pretty safe to assume. I, I think it is. That these guys, I don't know about you, have you ever been able to pick up a, a cluster of grapes and not pop one in your mouth? Maybe you can, I can't. Do you think they enjoyed some of the fruit of the land? Do you think they saw the fruit of the land? They did. They were able to taste and to see the goodness of God. His generosity. What he was going to be giving to us. Vines that we did not plant. Trees that we did not plant. Wells that we did not dig. They're seeing it. 
They're understanding the goodness of God. They were able to taste and see that the Lord is good. So what are they going to do? How will they respond? That should have been another filter that they passed through to see God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's goodness to them. And then the scouting is going to finish up. It takes 40 days and the people are going to return home, the spies are. And I can only imagine, as they're coming in, you probably hear the roars from the back. Oh my goodness, did you see the size of those grapes? Look at the pomegranates. They've got figs. They've got, man, I'm eating manna. But look at, look at what, this is where they're coming from. And the excitement of the people. The, the joy that the, the spies have returned and maybe, maybe we're going to be going in. And so then we get to the summary, verses 26 to 29. You're going to have the summary of their, their scouting endeavor. And what do they say? As you look at verses 26 to 29 in the passage, it says, They went to Moses and to Aaron, and then all the congregation of the children of Israel, they're listening from uh, the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land, verse 27, whither thou sent us, and surely... It flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. They answer all of Moses' questions. They're going to, in this summary. They're, they're going to provide empirical data. In other words, the, this is what we saw. This is what we experienced. This is the, this is the data that we have. They're going to show that. It says, you can see the fruit. It's great. The land is truly great. It does flow with milk and honey. And there, there's, there's no argument there. But then we come to the next verse. And they say, nevertheless. Now, they're, they're still going to state truth. But there is an intent to strike fear. And we see that in the response of people. And we see that later on in their response as well. The, the, ten, the ten spies who come back with the negative report. They say what? The people are strong. They, they say, nevertheless, the people are strong. They dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great. Some archaeologists have, have, have done some research in those areas, and they talk about these walls, some of them being up to 50 foot tall and 15 foot wide. We know when we study Jericho, the size, the enormity of the walls. They were large structures. They were great and walled cities, and they were very great Okay, they, weren't, they weren't telling a lie, but they're doing it with an intent to cause some disruption here. The children of Anak are living there, it says, um, uh, at the end of verse 28. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Again, who are these children of Anak? For the Israelites, they, do they really know who they are? It doesn't seem like it. We don't, you know, they wouldn't. You know, who are the children of Anak? And the people, they're everywhere. Look at verse 29. They talk about the Amorites dwell in the land of the south and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. They dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. They just rattle them all off and they're like, these people are everywhere. They're all around us. What are we going to do? And look at what happens. The people begin to murmur. They begin to talk and whisper. And oh no, there's, there's this, this concern that the people have. And, and what happens? Caleb steps in and he's going to look at the people and he's going to, you know, the great theological Hebrew word, he's going to shush them. He's going to shush, quiet. He's going to still the people. He's going to say, hey, whoa, whoa, shh. listen. And Caleb comes in in verse number 30 and he's going to, to change it a little bit. He's going to still the people, literally quiet them down. Caleb does not argue with anything that was said. In other words, it's true. The children of Anak are there. The cities are great. There are, there is a land that flows with milk and honey. There are a lot of people around there. But what does he say? He comes with the same information, the same data, and the same facts, and yet ends up with a vastly different interpretation. I know that would never happen in our day and age where we have the same information and the same data and people end up on two polar opposites of everything. You know, you, you can just take the, the current situation. To mask or not to mask? That is the question. To isolate or to allow herd immunity? What, which one do we do? Do we, do we look and we say quarantine the sick or do we quarantine everybody and isolate everybody? And yeah, everybody has all the same data and information out there and yet we find ourselves in stark opposite ends. 
So we can't look and say, man, these spies were just out to lunch. No, no it, it really does resemble what we face in our lives on a daily basis. What was it about Caleb, though? Caleb looks and says, hey, let's do something. Do you remember the uh, story of Todd Beamer at, uh, Beamer at uh, during 9-11 and Flight 93? And the last words he talks about uh, that his wife hears and then writes the book, he looks and he says, let's roll. That's where Caleb's at. Look what Caleb says in verse number 30. And Caleb stilled the people and said, let's go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. Caleb's heart looks and says, yes, I'm not going to be frozen by fear. Yes, they're out there. Yes, they're big. They're strong. But I am not going to be frozen by fear. He evidences faith. Sorry, there should be a faith in that blank. Faith in the face of fear. He's like, God's got this. He never says that out loud in this verse. We know later on he's going to. He's going to talk about the fact that he is under, his, his thought is underpinned by his theology, that God is in control. He identifies, he sees the difficulties, he sees the danger, and yet he's like, I am not going to be frozen in fear. I'm going to trust that God is in control. I'm going to be wise. We're going to do our part, but yet I am going to move forward. But he also recognizes that God can prevail. We can overcome any difficulties through God. He says, it looks insurmountable. It looks difficult. And yet I'm going. Why? Because God is with me. I'm going forward. Are you coming? Let's roll. Let's go possess what God has said. He's promised it. He's been faithful to us. We've seen the goodness of God. It is time to trust in the power of God. He trusts in the power of God when others see insurmountable odds. Yeah, there's difficulties out there. Yeah, there's a lot going on in our world. Yes, it looks bleak at times, and yet we must trust in God's promises, in God's faithfulness, in God's goodness, in God's power. We must be willing to follow after that and use that as our theological grid and framework by which we do everything else. Now, the people, the 10 spies, they don't like that. And so they're going to they're going to go back again. And you're like in this great debate here between Caleb and Joshua. Eventually in 14, you're going to get Joshua coming in and the other 10 spies. And these 10 spies are going to use scare tactics. It amazes me when you look at how they respond and what they're doing and how they're pursuing, how much this parallels our society. They look and they say, all right, you don't, we want, we have an agenda here. Verse 31, they say, but the men went up with him that went up with Caleb said, we are not able to go against the people for they are stronger than we. So what do they do? They collectively bring together in verse number 32, an evil report. They were so fixated on the difficulties that it influenced their decisions. They were so fixated on fear that they did not do what they were supposed to do. They were so afraid of something bad happening that they allowed themselves to be frozen in fear. We see that today. We really do. So what do they do? They get together and collectively bring what God calls an evil report. He says this was intended to strike fear, to cause disbelief, to cause difficulties in God, God's people. And so we have here the evil report. This was not a stating of the facts at this point, but now it's an interpretation with an intent to coerce away from the belief, from belief in God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's power, and God's goodness. Excuse me, my cough drop got struggling there. What happens? They strike this fear. Now look at what they do. Like many politicians and people in general, these spies understood this. If we use fear to strike into people's hearts, we can get them to do things they don't want to do, to deny what they're supposed to be doing, to, to just stop their life. And it's easy, it's amazing how easily they can make them afraid. Look at what they, look at what they do. They up their game. Where do they strike them at? They say, look at, it's going to hurt your health. It's going to hurt your safety. It's going to hurt your children, your loved ones, grandma, grandpa, your wives, your children. Really, if you look at the way the 10 spies work, 
they could make a political ad that you could put on today. That if we go into this land like Caleb wants to do, your children are going to be devoured. You will, this land, it eats people. It devours them. Your safety, you will be crushed by the giants. And your family, your loved ones, they're in a lot of danger. This ad was paid for by Shimei or whoever. You know, you, you can see they are using scare tactics in these verses. Look in verse 32. It says, They brought this evil report into the land that they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it, it's a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. All the people are now of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak. Now you know who the, the Anakim, the, the, Anak, the sons of Anak are. They're giants. They're really big people. And we were in our sight as grasshoppers. And in their sight, guess what? That's what we look like too. They said, wow, we're, they, what did they do here? They not only used scare tactics, man, they were flip-floppers. They really were. It's, it's, it's eerie to look at. What did they say? They said just a few verses ago, this land, it's a good land. It flows with milk and honey. Yet this land now devours its inhabitants. People can't survive there. It is not a good land. If people can't survive there, if the land devours it, then how in the world are there all these people that you just said were in the land? And how is it that these people are thriving and they're so strong and they're almighty, but yet the land devours it? It devours its people? How does that, how does that work? That you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth here, and yet they are doing that, and they're scaring people, and they're, they're throwing things out, and they're causing confusion, rather than getting the people to think and to discern and to listen with the theological intent, they get all nervous. What do they say? They say, all the men are of great stature. Earlier it was like, okay, there are some, there are some of these people who seem to be large, the children of Anak, but remember back in earlier when they were at Hebron, verse 22, they only name three of the children of Anak. They say there are three of them who are here. But now all these people, everybody there, are great. They're massive. And then we have these giants. The word, the word that's used here for giants is the word Nephilim in verse 33. It's used two different times in verse 33. And we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, which, came, uh, which come of the Nephilim. The Nephilim are, they were... Uh, talked about back in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, that there were these great men. They were considered an ancient race, descendants of mighty men of renown who lived before the flood. They were strong. They were despotic. They were taking over. They, they, they were the world power. They were strong and mighty and living however they wanted and doing what they wanted. And we have the only other references there. But by this time... By the time that Moses is coming in, the Nephilim are lore. Because there's, there's something that happened. The, the Nephilim were these mighty men of renown before the flood. Moses is after the flood. There's only those eight people who survived the flood, and they weren't Nephilim. No, it was not. There's no, there's no lineage, nothing. So they're not, they're not actual descendants of the Nephilim. They can't be. What are, the, what are they doing? The, the children of Israel don't know who the sons of Anak are. They don't understand the concept of giants. But in their lore, in their, their histories of years gone by, they would have understood who the Nephilim were. That they were this great people. They would be like Paul Bunyan for us. We, we have this, this <clears throat> mystique of how great and how strong and amazing Paul Bunyan was. They would have gotten to this point where they could say, they're the Nephilim. <gasps> oh, uh, they're huge. They're massive. They're super strong. That's who's in the land. They're using scare tactics. They're using fear to freeze the people, to make them not do what they ought to be doing. And so these giants, you know, many consider Goliath even a descendant of Anak. They're big. We can't deny it. Og, who is one of these, these, uh, the giants in the land, Deuteronomy chapter 3 talks about after, after uh, Moses and the, the army destroyed them, that Og's bed was made of iron. It was 13 and a half feet long, six foot wide, just his bed. That's a big dude. 
That's a massive, I'm, you're going to look up to him and go, uh, so it's not that there weren't giants in the land. They were there. They were present. The people don't know who Anak are, but they know the stories of the Nephilim. And they made people feel weak, insignificant, impotent, and the odds are insurmountable. That's what they were trying to do. You can't make a difference, people. It's too great. It's too much. You know, what you want to do, your decision to go, it's not going to count. It really, we can't do this. They have taken the children of Israel's trust and the promises of God and God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's power, and they've completely undermined it because they struck fear into their hearts. They were causing confusion and they were making things seem insurmountable to the people. So we get to this point, and what happens? Chapter 13 is the beginning of the road to ruin. This, this really is the beginning of the epic demise of this generation of Israelites. It's the beginning of the end for them. What did they do? They forgot to include God in their decision-making. It's really interesting. In this chapter in the book of Numbers, very different than the rest of the book, There is one mention of God, one, in the entire chapter, 33 verses, the longest section in the book where God is not mentioned. And it's only the Lord spake to Moses. After that, you have no mention of God because they weren't involving God. They were putting God to the side and just looking at everything else. So the majority completely left God out of the equation. There's no mention in that entire chapter. Let's be honest. If you forget God, you will inevitably fear men. You will fear the situations around you. You will wonder how we can overcome. We will, if we forget God, no matter what happens this coming Tuesday, if we forget God, we're going to be afraid of what's going to happen in our country, in our world. And yet if we recognize that God is in control and he is going to be part of my decision-making process, then that's important. It's necessary. I think that goes even to with the election. We can't forget God when we go to vote. You can't look at candidates and look and say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to vote for whoever I think you know, is going to give me more money in my pocket. We must look and say, wait, are there, are there areas that are directly opposed to the word of God? Absolutely. Whether it's abortion, whether it is the, the struggles of, uh, not struggles, but the, the perspective on LGBTQ questions. There's a whole lot. And we have to look and say, wait, we can't leave God out of the polling place. Going to make a major decision this week, you can't leave God out of it. Have you prayed? Have you even prayed about, are you just like, nope, I know who I'm voting for because that's just the way it is. Have you prayed about the decisions you're going to make on Tuesday? We cannot leave God out of the voting place because it's part of our decision-making process. What else did they do? They fixated on the hardships, on the difficulties. They looked at the giants. They looked at the great walled cities They looked at the mass of people. And what did it do? They struggled. I'm not saying ignore them. They shouldn't have went, eh, no, no big deal. They needed to like Caleb. Caleb looks and goes, yes, there are dangers there, but we're going to take it. We're going to possess that land. God doesn't say it's going to be easy. Our life is not promised to be easy. But with God, it's not impossible. Anything we go to face, we're we're in a position right now where, where we can fixate very easily on the hardships and the difficulties. All of the things that are happening around us, whether it's a virus or a vote, whether it's the financial hardship you may be going through, the emotional struggles you may be facing, the marital difficulties, and you may say it just seems too hard, it's too difficult, and you know what? I don't think God can have anything to do with it. I'm just going to forget God. I'm going to fixate on the hardship. And that is a road to ruin. It is a road that is going to hurt and destroy We cannot just fixate on the hardships and the difficulties. What will it do? It will freeze you in fear. You will not want to step outside of your house. You will not want to talk to people. You will not want to go and and do what God calls you to do 
because it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. You want me to go share the gospel? No, it's too hard to share the gospel. You want me to, you want me to, to faithfully serve in church? That's really difficult. You know, I only have so many hours in the week. We cannot fixate on the hardship and the difficulty, but we must focus on what God has for us. And we cannot falter in our theology. You say, well, I'm never, I'm never going to falter in my theology. Most of the Israelites were going to say the same exact thing you and I just said, that we're not going to falter. And yet, you look at these, these leaders, these spies were leaders, they were respected, they were men who were chosen because they were wise, they were strong, they were respected individuals. And 10 of the 12 falter in their theology. They faltered in the fact that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful to his word, that God is good to his people, and that God is powerful when his people are not. You see that through this chapter. And yet, 10 of the 12 men falter They've basically become practical atheists. Now, here's what I mean by that. Theologically, we say all those things are true, that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful to his word, that God is good to his people, that God is powerful to when, when we're not. Yet, when it comes to our practical daily living, we find ourselves failing in those areas. We become practical atheists. We leave God out. James, James talks about it when, you know, the, the people are like, oh, today we're going to buy and we're going to sell. And they, they do everything without even concerning God. And, and James says, you ought to have said, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We will go and buy and sell. They were practically atheists. They, yes, they understood God. And yet in their practical everyday outworking of life, they were not using God in their decision-making process. They were not focusing on him. They were fixating on the hardships and they ended up faltering in their, their, their theology. Practical atheism. It's like a fish denying the existence of water. We may look and say, you know, um, the, before I get to that, I want to read something. That's, we may look and say, you know, it's really irrational. Their unbelief the way they act, they're, they're, as I'm calling it, their practical atheism. This one writer writes it far more eloquently and articulate than I could ever have done. So I want to I read just a paragraph for you where he's talking about Israel. He's talking about these spies. And he says, notice how fundamentally irrational their unbelief was. The majority report was logically flawed. We talked about the logical flaws in it, that they were scare tactics, they were flip-flopping, that they were saying this, but saying that, and that the, the Nephilim don't even exist anymore. Yes, there are giants, but they're not as ridiculous as you're making it sound. All of it, just very illogical. And yet he goes on to say, but isn't our unbelief equally irrational though? We believe and proclaim that God created the universe out of nothing. Yet we find it hard to believe the results of a particular medical test belong to him. We believe and proclaim that God directs the courses of kings and nations. And yet we find it very difficult if our president who we voted for loses. We believe that God saved us from our sin, from our despicableness. And yet we find it hard to believe that he can bring our stubborn friends and neighbors to faith in himself. We believe and proclaim that our God entered into history as a baby in Bethlehem, yet we find it hard to believe that he is active in our own personal history, holding our hands through the events of the week and the next weeks. We believe and proclaim that he suffered on the cross for our sins and rose again triumphant from the grave to free us from our sins, yet we find it hard to believe that this particular sin of ours could ever be forgiven or that the power of that sinful habit could ever be broken. Our unbelief is always fundamentally irrational and sinful refusal to fear God, which results equally, inevitably, in a sinful fear of a people and circumstances. It is irrational for us to cling to our unbelief as it is for a drowning man to cling to a heavy stone. We find ourselves at times saying we believe this, that God is in control, 
that God is sovereign in the affairs of men, that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is powerful. And yet in our practical everyday life, how do we live that out? Are you struck by fear? Are you fixating on the problems? Even this week, as we face a a very big decision in our nation, our nation faces a vote, which for many of us we believe really will determine and dictate direction of our country, where we head. And yet I have to, no matter how it turns out, I don't think we're going to know on Tuesday night, but if we do, I have to be determined to understand that no matter what the outcome, God is in control. That I believe that God is powerful. That God has our goodness at heart, even if it doesn't go the way that I want it to. That I have to believe that God is faithful no matter what happens. And that God keeps his promises. That as I look through scripture, that he's not going to leave us, that he is not going to forsake us. I trust in God. Maybe it's a prayer this week. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help our hearts to grasp your glory and your goodness so that we are overwhelmed by your presence. To be in prayer this week for our nation. To be in prayer for our fellow friends from church who may be really battling with fear, with anxiety, with struggles. But Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us not to falter in our theology. Help us not to fixate on the circumstances and the overwhelming odds. Lord, help us to keep your promises. So as we walk away this week, don't forget. Do not forget to factor in faith when you are fixated on fear going to be easy this week. A lot of unknowns. A lot of things happening. And it can be very easy to listen to all of the noise from the majority and forget to focus on the supreme sovereign God of the universe. Don't forget to factor in faith this week, even when you find yourself fixated on fear. Father, I pray that you would help us to look to you. Lord, it's going to be easy this week for us to get our eyes off of you, and get our eyes on the turmoil and the stress and the concerns for our nation. Lord, bless our nation. Strengthen it. And yet, Lord, we know that our nation is in your hands, and you will and do direct the hearts of the kings, the hearts of the nation. And Lord, we trust that whatever happens this week, it is in your control. And Lord, if it doesn't go the way that many of us would, would like to see, Help us not to doubt your goodness. Help us not to doubt your faithfulness. Help us not to doubt your power. And help us not to doubt your promises like the Israelites did. Lord, help us to focus on you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great week.